This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. Today, celebrating the just past uh, Canada Day, which was our 150th anniversary, as I'm sure literally every single person in this country had beaten into their heads this past year, uh, is well aware, I figured might as well talk a little bit about Canadian film. I know I'm a bit late. I originally planned for this to be up before Canada Day, but you know, things happen or something or other. But today I am joined by uh, my good friend Sammy Felcherfeld, who is here to talk about some of our favorite Canadian films. How are you doing, Sammy? I'm doing well. And I think it's okay because July is Canada month. You it can just say like that. It. Yep. Like the way all the advertising, it's basically just Canada year. Canada year. <laughs> Every year is Canada year. It, it, yeah, why not? You know, it's a good sure. way to make ourselves feel superior to Americans. That's the goal, isn't it? Right? With our <laughs> inferiority complex? Of course. Um, now, originally, we, I was planning on having you on the Wonder Woman episode. That was the last one, but unfortunately, scheduling didn't work out. So I regret that because I know you had lots to say about that. Um, but I figured I'd make it up to you by still bringing you on. Yes, thank you for for having me for this one. I <laughs> I have lots of, lots of things to say about everything, so I'm not I'm not concerned. You're very opinionated. Who told you that? Uh, you have told me many times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now I think you know. There's kind of a bit of a looking at the Canadian film industry. We're always going to be in the shadow of the U.S. Even compared to like the international scene, um, we're we're definitely kind of in the shadows of everything. You know, British cinema is its own thing, and then you know, almost every country in Europe has had their own film waves, whether it was. The Italians, the French, the Germans, the Spanish, Portuguese, what have you. In Asia, of course, they have a rich film history. Uh, and Canada, while it plays a really big role in the film industry, we tend to really overlook it. And maybe that is a bit of our inferiority complex sort of creeping in where we're, where we're very dismissive about our own products. Um, do, you, do you have any reasons why you think that might be or, or thoughts about that? I think it's it's kind of two sides of it. It's proximity to the U.S. And then the other piece of that is also that we're a primarily English language nation. Like when you look at French Canadian cinema, it's it's it is its own thing. And that's where I think a lot of the best cinema cinema in Canada comes from. But instead, for English Canada, you have people just trying to break it um, so that they can make it to Hollywood or make it into the States. But then at the same time, you have practically everything is filmed here especially in the television industry everything is filmed in canada toronto especially is, is growing more and more each year so i think it's interesting that it's sort of it is the inferiority complex we're just trying to mimic them we're trying to, to get into the u.s side of things but then they're infiltrating to us and that's i mean we're going to talk about some canadian directors that basically don't work in canada anymore that's a couple that's on my list for sure um so i think it i think it is there's a lot of factors i think that we just pretty much this is one of those things where we're can we're america's hat <laughs> and that's what that's what we're doing. It 
at times it almost feels like I guess to use a bit of a sports analogy, we're the the minor league farm team for America's entertainment industry. Like you can more than anything are comedy. You look at almost any big comedian in the United States from the last 40 years and you know, you basically have a 50% chance that they're probably Canadian. Um whether it's movie actors, directors, uh television stars, producers, writers. Yeah comedy especially but like other genres as well but it seems like almost every single comedian uh for a good long while was canadian that ruled you know the box office whether it was someone like jim carrey or mike myers or yeah. half the people from snl or things like that so that's that's always kind of an interesting thing but i think you did really hit on a really good point that i, I didn't want to talk about but i actually forgot and didn't include it in my notes but this idea of of french cinema kind of being our pinnacle because you're right, with English language cinema, we're just sort of competing with the U.S. to fight for the same things, whereas Quebecois cinema is really their own thing. You know, they have one province with only a few million people to really draw in, but they have a rich history of actually supporting their arts, both in government grants and in the public, just going out and seeing things. And they yeah. are also able to you know, get a bit of a European audience as well, because whether it's France or other, you know, countries that have large French speaking populations, whether it's Switzerland or, or places like that, they, uh, they really do also like our French films. Yeah. Well, and it, it also helps that, that Quebec French is pretty much its own language if you ask the French. So it's, it's a very insular thing, whereas there's a, there's significantly more English speakers in the world. So there's more competition for eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's very true. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think always kind of baffles some people when they're new getting into deep into the film scene is the idea of Canada is able to actually technically produce foreign films for the Oscars. And, you know, it seems like once every four or five years we get a, a nomination for uh, a foreign language film coming out of Quebec. Uh, yeah. So much so that we're, we're kind of up there, you know, in the top 10 most nominated countries. We're nowhere near Italy and France, but we're up there as far as actually getting nominations and having a couple wins too, which most countries in the world can't say that they have. Yeah, but that's sort of, I think that, that then become, becomes how do you get Canadian film on the world stage? Make it French. Yeah. And that, and that's how you get them get them to an Oscar nomination. That's how you get them into other festivals sometimes. So, I mean, we could talk specifically about this as well, but <laughs> I I well, I I know that's something that's going to come up a little bit with me with especially one of my films that I want to talk about and it might be one that you've seen as well because I know you're a fan of the same director. Um, so I guess we'll I'll just kind of like for anyone that doesn't know, there is there is a difference between a Canadian film and a Canadian film. Now, if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes around one of them. Uh, the reasoning is a Canadian film, a country is defined by its nationality, by where the money comes from. So you can have a movie that is shot in Canada with a Canadian director, with a Canadian writer, with, you know, a lead as the Canadian and all the crew Canadian, but it isn't a Canadian film. It could be an American film. It could be a British film. It could be a Chinese film. So the real harboringer of it is where does the money come from and i think that's something that uh often gets very confused and muddied and a lot of people probably don't even realize it sometimes you don't even realize you watch a movie afterwards you learn oh that was a canadian film yeah 
Um, so, you know, I think the, the good one, we're just talking about best foreign films. For me, uh, one of my favorites, probably my favorite Canadian film is On Sunday. Is that one that you've seen? Uh, I, I hate to admit that I have not seen it, but I have seen an English production of the play. Oh, really? Um, and as much as I've seen uh, Villeneuve's most recent movies, and I've even seen Maelstrom, but I haven't seen On Sunday yet. So huh. that's something we'll have to watch. Yeah, uh, that that's that movie's a bit of a, a one and done because it's a, a pretty heavy one. Uh, much like I feel like the best, some of our best films are usually pretty heavy. Um, yeah, definitely. Especially coming from Quebec, you know, they've got the comedies that are usually kind of in the bittersweet uh, category where they're not real, you know, slapstick type of comedy physical comedies they're more you know laughter with a little bit of a sadness to it and then really really heartbreaking depressing dramas or then you have Denis Arcana and it's both in every movie (laughs) i I, but that's what i'm saying where it's like you know it's not there's no they don't do pure comedies well there are some of them but the best ones are like the comedies with you know a little bit of levity and you know real life injected into it or you know the super depressing ones where you're just like that was great i'm never watching this again but that was fantastic (laughs) um well then uh, what's some of uh, your favorites then if you have not seen on sandy that you clearly need to rectify Definitely. Um, my first, uh, probably my first interaction with, with Canadian film would have been Way Downtown, uh, a film from the 90s by a man named Gary Burns, who I've discovered, I don't think he's made anything else since then. Um, and of course, it's Don McKellar and a bunch of other Canadian actors are in it. Um, but I saw it when I was a very impressionable, like eight or nine year old. Um, not a movie an eight or nine year old should be seeing, but it was just very Canadian, set in Calgary. Everything was very obviously Canadian. Um, and, and the production value was quite low. I think the budget was probably a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot for, I think, a Canadian film in the 90s. Um, But it made an impression because then I I sort of was able to see this is not the European, it's not the the American, it's not the UK, um, which sort of sent me on a path of kind of Bruce McDonald movies and things like that, which uh, they're actually not on my top list, but I just, I, I think it's worth sharing that that's one of the first first ones for me. Have you seen it or even heard of it? I have literally never even heard of it. Can you tell All me right. a bit more about it? Yeah, it's basically, um, it's kind of a ridiculous concept. It's basically these three people work in um, an office in downtown Calgary. Calgary has um, something called the, the I think it's called Plus 15, and it's the same as Toronto's Path or the uh, Montreal Underground uh, City. Hmm. And it's basically that in, because Calgary is so cold, they don't build their connected city underground. It's uh, it's basically above the streets. So it's all bridges um, connected between buildings. And so these three people who happen to live in an apartment building that's also connected to the same thing, they challenge each other to not step foot outside for, I think, six months or something like that, <laughs> um, which is easily possible in a lot of in a lot of Canadian cities that get cold because they're designed that way. Um, and they basically just go crazy. And it becomes very surreal by the end of it. Um, but it was, I think some of it was just a recognition of these are all people I've seen on Canadian TV because I have a huge passion for Canadian TV that I think is not replicated in the same way in, in the film world, but it's always the same actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but like I said, I think the thing that stood out to me the most is that they were unabashedly Canadian. And it, it was a time when you could see tons of movies filmed in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, but, oh, it's New York, or, oh, it's San Francisco, or, oh, it's L.A. So it was, it was kind of, I think, refreshing at the time for me, being very young, but already being a big fan of film, just saying, hey, this is Calgary. This is very obviously Calgary, because they keep saying it, and they keep showing it, and it's very, very clear. Hmm. That's interesting. 
That's kind of how I feel a little bit about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, even though that is not a Canadian film. You know, Edgar Wright did not shy away from making that movie very Toronto. Yeah, which uh, you have to do. Yeah. And so, you know, I love the movie either way, but I think I feel like a special connection to it because, you know, I've been to that pizza pizza where they go to, you know, I've yeah. been to the record store where they shop at or the clubs that they play their shows at, things like that, where, where it's yeah. really nice and fun that way. Um, but I think, uh, if I may, I actually yeah. wrote, wrote a list for myself of Canada in film. Um, oh. So whether it's films that are made by Canadians, but Scott Pilgrim is one of the first ones because it the, the, the books are based in Toronto. You can't do it not in Toronto. And I think it's interesting when people come in and whether it's it's Canada playing Canada or whether it's or even if it's Canada playing some other place, it's interesting. I think how filmmakers can sometimes uh, you can tell there's a bit of a love love for it in a way. There was a this this is kind of a silly reference because I wouldn't call it a Canadian film, but it probably was. There was a comedy with um, Bruce Willis and I can't remember who else called the whole nine yards. Oh yeah 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 Matthew Perry and was in that Matthew Perry yes and it was everyone made the biggest deal that it was set in Montreal yeah. not that it was just filmed there but it was set there oh it's a it's a big blockbuster which it wasn't but it was a funny movie um, but again it was a, whoever made this movie said yeah it's going to be set in a Canadian city for once and everyone just. And I think more people just were excited about that than the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember that movie came out. That was also with like Amanda Peet and yeah. uh, I can't remember who else. But yeah, it was it was moderately funny. And then they made a sequel, and it was pretty bad. Correct. Um, I don't think I even finished the sequel, but I do remember watching the original one once or twice. As that's the type of movie that like will come on TV every once in a while. Back right. when I actually had cable. Um, and yeah, and then you was, just watch it cause it's on. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I've seen it before. It's kind of funny. There's got good laugh moments. Yeah. So that wasn't too bad. What else is on your list there? Um, for the Canada in film or favorite Canadian films, uh, Canada in film, you want to um, give a quick rundown of what you got. Yeah. I put, um, I put the film looper, which, um, not, sorry, not looper jumper. Those are different <laughs> movies. Very different. I don't movies. remember looper being in Canada. Uh, Jumper was filmed, I actually am familiar with it because it was filmed in the city I was doing university and a bunch of it was filmed there. And it's one of those, those not great, um, sci-fi movies where they don't say where it's set. Mm. So it's another thing where you can clearly see this, this obvious landmark to people who are from Peterborough, for instance. And it's just like, well, no one really needs to know. Um, but the, the two other ones, big ones on my list, um, Last Night by Don McKellar from the late 90s, and that is very much a Canadian film. It was Sandra O's, oh I think, her first or second film. Um, and it is very Toronto. It's basically just what happens in Toronto at the end of the world. People are going to knock over a streetcar. Um, <laughs> but that was Don McKellar saying, I'm in love with Toronto, but I'm going to destroy everything anyway. Um, and then on the other side, completely different, is Blindness, um, which was Fernando Morelli's Brazilian filmmaker, filmed in Toronto. The point in the original book and in the movie, you're not supposed to know where it's set. So in the movie, they just let it be set in Toronto, essentially. There, there are certain things where you can tell that even though it's most of it's set kind of within a, a confined space, there's certain things where you can sort of feel the... I guess it's almost in, in a lot of ways more Toronto than Canada, but I think it's an it's an interesting choice when it's not just we're going to film it here, but we're going to make it here. We're going to make it something that's that's not just the place we're filming it, but the place that it's actually set. Yeah, yeah, it's not something we we really get a lot. So when you do see it, there's obviously a little bit of pride and attachment to it automatically. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you know in in recent years there's kind of been two directors that have really come out of Canada 
that started out in Quebecois cinema and have since graduated to, you know, American world cinema that I think are very interesting. And they both have taken interesting career paths. Uh, we already mentioned Denis Villeneuve, uh, him and Jean-Marc Vallier. And yeah. I think the two of them kind of represent, uh, you know, the current popularity of Canadian cinema um, at a pretty high level that's like recognized by the award shows and things like that. Because Villeneuve, I, I talked about on Sunday, which actually I think has very little French in it. It has, you know, a bit of French in it, but it's mostly in Arabic. Yeah. Um, but some of his, his other earlier films, he had uh, Polytechnic. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember. I'm blanking. I didn't write any others down. But then you have Jean-Marc Vallier, who also started in Canadian cinema, but also but in a very different way. His was always kind of, I don't want to say romantic comedies, but like there was a bit more of that sort of a flair to his movies where they're yeah. more lighthearted, more family comedy dramas, uh, things like Crazy. Have you ever seen Crazy? I have seen Crazy, yes. That, that, I love that movie. When that movie came out, I was blown away by it. You know, it's kind of hard not to get sucked into it when it has, like, such a, you know, great soundtrack to it. Yeah. That's yeah. something that, like, can instantly be like, yeah, I like the songs playing, so I'm emotionally invested into this movie. Um, and then it was also just, like, a really good story with lots of great acting. And I'm, I also don't have any of his other French movies in front of me, but since then, you know, he's gone on to be a pretty big shot. I really liked his movie, the young Victoria. And I thought he was going in an interesting direction. And then he's kind of gone a lot more melodramatic since then. He did Dallas Buyers club, which parts of it is good. There's problems with it otherwise. Um, and then what was the last movie he did? Um, uh, it says uh, he did, he did wild. Oh, and yeah. I have the Wikipedia open, and he did demolition, but I haven't actually seen demolition. Demolition looked pretty bad. Yeah, I think it sort of. Uh, oh, it was a flop. So there you go. <laughs> but wild, I did actually think was a was a pretty good movie. I have to say, actually, I, I I'd seen crazy, and I was like, okay, I've never seen any of his other movies. I've seen Dallas Buyers Club, and I loved The Young Victoria, and I had no idea until right now, looking at his page, that he did those. So <laughs> so there you go. But you're you're right. He went in. It was a very interesting direction of, of kind of these these specific kind of movies that are in that almost in that pastiche you mentioned before maybe a bit lighter than some of the other quebec um comedies but mm-hmm. then just then it sort of looked like okay this story sounds interesting i'm gonna do it um like looking at young victoria dallas buyers club wild demolition they couldn't really be more different yeah. well wild wild and dallas buyers club have similarities but um but yeah, just looking at that, I'm like, wow, it's, but this is something you said earlier already is that sometimes you watch a movie and then you're like, oh, I guess in theory, this was a Canadian film or there's Canadian as- content, Canadian aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Villeneuve, on the other hand, I think, you know, if you're a, a current film buff, I think it's impossible not to list him up there as one of the best working directors right now where he's done four English movies and I would say three of the four are easily some of the best films that have come out in the last few years. Which one would you say is not? Enemy. And I only say that because I actually haven't seen that one, but that was probably the least well-received of his four English movies and also probably his weirdest one. Right. Uh, have you seen Enemy? I have not seen Enemy. I was uh, I was kind of blown away, but also kind of scared after Prisoners, and they came out a few months apart. So yeah, yeah. I was like, I'll pass on this one. But then I love Sicario, which was not that much later. So yeah, and then he he followed it up with Arrival last year, which was 
easily one of my favorite sci-fi films ever. Probably. And you know, you know, it's my favorite film of last year. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and all three of those are pretty great in very different ways. Um, Prisoners, you know, followed up on Sandy of him showing that he can do brutally dark films. Yeah. Um, Prisoners is another one that I probably would not want to rewatch again because there, there's certain moments in that you know the shower scene that i don't really feel like reliving (laughs) yeah yeah um even though that has like some really good performances across the board in that movie i i think that's i think that's another thing about him is he's managed to get some fantastic performances out of every single actor he's worked with you know outside of emily blunt and sicario none of the other actors in that i would say you know, always hit it out of the park. Benicio del Toro is so hit and miss sometimes. Josh Brolin is another guy who can be a little hit right. or miss. Um, that kind of introduced the world to Daniel Kaluuya, who just starred in Get Out earlier this year, which was a great sort of launching pad for him. But that, but I have a thought about this because I'm looking now. It's sort of he did he did Maelstrom like nearly 20 years ago. Then it was Polytechnique and Ensemble really close together, and then he really, I think Hollywood kind of caught on and said, "Let's let's get him doing stuff." And you can tell he's doing movies he really wants to do because of the similarities of the uh, Pr- Prisoner's Enemy and Sicario. But then now he's becoming, and uh, full disclosure, Dune is my favorite science fiction novel of all time, and he's going to be directing Dune, which is a very very tall order. But he's also doing Blade Runner this year, and he did Arrival last year. So now you're seeing kind of, I mean, since Maelstrom being kind of weird sci-fi-ish, I guess, movie, um, he's sort of saying, okay, now I have, it, it, is it maybe now I have the power of making sci-fi films? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it arrival is so, so different from his previous movies, but just so loving, lovingly done. And I don't at this point, I don't know if it has anything to do with him being Canadian. I think it's as you said, he's he is one of the best directors mm-hmm. making films right now. Mm-hmm. And we're just lucky that he is Canadian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you know I'm very excited for Blade Runner. Uh, I think how that movie ends up turning out will give us a good idea of how well he's going to be able to handle Dune because Blade Runner is such a intensely personal film to a lot of people, uh, like to, to the older generation of sci-fi fans. If that movie turns out to be as great as everything else that he's done, then I think a lot of people, especially Dune fans might take a, a sigh of relief being like, all right, you know what? I'm, I'm still hoping for the best, but you know what? I, I feel like I'm in good hands now. Right. I don't That's know. Do fans have been been through a lot? The last one of the last film uh, projects that that was in the running was Luke Besson, who's doing Valyrian this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was attached to it, which this was before his last two movies, which weren't that great. And I was super excited for that. And then, of course, it was canceled. So. I'm still I think Dune fans like me are still holding our breath even for it to be made <laughs> because there's been there's been one movie in a miniseries, right? One movie in two miniseries. Two miniseries and the, okay. the, the miniseries was uh, it was based on the first three books. So they were they're the same kind of series together mm-hmm. over a couple of years. But since David Lynch's 84 film, there has been probably six or seven attempts and the one attempt before David Lynch as well, which is um, the subject of the great documentary Jodorowsky's Dune as yeah. well. Which would have been a very different movie, but what it's one of those projects that's always um, it's always coming up, and I think this was Villeneuve being announced as the, as the director. I think was the the first time in probably a decade that sci-fi fans just said, okay, I think it's going to be made. <laughs> yeah. He he definitely has that sort of cachet among the art house world where he's basically at the point where he can 
pick his own movies no matter what. Um, Pretty much, yeah. And, and I, I think he is the right person to be able to do that because, you know, about every five to ten years, you'll get a few directors who, you know, have a couple hits in a row in the art house world and they are kind of set for the rest of their lives as yeah. far as picking their own projects. And I think that's actually kind of a bit of a trend with, uh, with some other Canadian directors. You know, you have someone like David Cronenberg. After he made The Fly, he's basically been allowed to do whatever the hell he wants for the rest of his career. <laughs> yeah, my first uh cronenberg film was existence um <laughs> have you have you seen it uh i feel like that's a movie that like i I've, i haven't watched in full but like i caught clips on showcase because showcase seems to love watching they, his movies yeah. and so like being you know in the ages of like 10 to 15 it seems like every other month they would show a different movie and i'd watch about half an hour of him being like i have no idea what the hell i'm watching i'm not gonna watch this anymore but also being kind of freaked out and also kind of oddly intrigued about what was going on i think i feel like before i actually saw existence in full i may have experienced the very um pg version of videodrome which is not the same movie as the real (laughs) movie so but but for him i think you're absolutely right and they said okay here's what you know how to do and he just started making those films but then look at his last 10 years of i'd say kind of more hollywood dramas maybe i'm thinking eastern promises primarily which which i never saw but i've heard is quite good it but is, yeah. very di- very very different from the videodromes and the existence and 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 those kind of movies from the 80s 90s that even still like eastern promises specifically it's a it's a pretty brutally violent movie that's true <laughs> um where he doesn't really shine away from the gore, which is something that's kind of always been a mainstay in his movie, whether it's, you know, the the kind of gross out horror of the fly or the actual physical gore of something like Crash, which is another movie that I'd probably have seen about two thirds of <laughs> at various points in time watching bits and pieces on TV when it right. comes out and being utterly repulsed but couldn't change the channel for um but then he's also made some other like more drama e movies like uh, a dangerous method the the freud yep. and young movie and um uh what was that cosmopolis uh which 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 was like another one which seemed to get more press about it than people actually saw yeah wasn't that um uh vampire dude in a car that yeah, movie it was, it was yeah right uh, yeah, right. a that, guy I actually went to true. high school ended up with a small part in that. Well, there you go. Yeah. Canadian film. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Like, I'll, you know, I'll try not to say that for, for almost every director, but like, I, I do know people have done Canadian films and things like that. Right. But like, if, you know, you're into the acting world as well, the theater world, it's kind of hard not to run into someone who has at least some brush with Canadian film or television. Oh yeah, especially in 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 Toronto. That's it's everybody. Oh yeah, I was in that play, or I know that person. Oh yeah, I was in that episode of that TV show. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that you know, I think I was kind of crapping on Canadian comedies a bit at the beginning, but I think there are a few that I'm quite fond of. Um, Crazy was one of them, being a French yeah. one. But uh, as far as English ones, uh, I'm a big fan of the movie Men with Brooms. Have you ever seen that one? Oh yeah, I and I really like that movie, yeah. especially being a being a teenager. I think <laughs> it's a pretty it's a, it is a bit of a young juvenile movie at times. Yes, <laughs> uh, Paul Gross, you know, doing his smoldering leading man sort of thing at that time, where everyone was like, "Oh yeah, he's gonna be the next big thing," and then he kind of never became the next big thing. 
Well, he's still he's still in theater, so <laughs> yeah, I, I think he never properly made the jump. Maybe it was yeah. either missed opportunities by him, or you know, maybe just the public at large overrating him a bit. Not right. not for his talent, obviously, because he's an immensely talented actor uh, and director as well. But it's, it's kind of interesting. And um, who's the older guy in that? Was that is that Donald Sutherland that's in that? Uh, it, I'm I'm on the page right now. It's Leslie Nielsen. Leslie actually. Nielsen, that's it. Yeah, one of one of our one, as coming back to what you're saying about our comic exports mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, he was one of the biggest Ameri- like com- comedians in America, and he is unabashedly Canadian. So. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the 80s, yeah, he, w- he was basically the, the, the king of comedic cinemas, late 70s yeah. to 80s, and the stuff like Airplane and um, the Naked, the gun, naked gun movies gun, yeah. and things like that, where he was just the best. And I think anytime he kind of pops up, uh, may he rest in peace, um, was really a, a sort of a treat and seeing something like this where it was not quite a leading role, but pretty close to being a leading role well after his star had faded was, was pretty special, I think. Right. I, I wanted to come back to Paul Gross actually for a section, second sure. because um, this is coming back to, I think you mentioned it for Cosmopolis as well, the kind of, I think in Canada we really celebrate when there's a bigger Canadian film being made, but then nobody sees it. Mm-hmm. Um, one example being uh, Passchendaele. So yeah. being a Paul Gross, this was the Men with Brooms was actually the first movie he directed, which Wikipedia is telling me now, and I had no idea. Um, <laughs> Passchendaele, which I never saw, has one of my favorite actresses in it, and I really should get around to see it, uh, Caroline Davernas. And then his next film was Hyena Road a couple years ago, and he just basically made himself a Canadian war filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the niche he's cut himself. And I think that he really did, especially with something that men with men with brooms and all this stuff that was going on around him, slings and arrows soon afterward on TV, he sort of became an actor in Canadian film and television. And that's where he stayed. And I think that happens to a lot of people, which is why so many things filmed in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver tend to have the same people in them Mm -hmm. because they, they can't break it out. They either have to go and be an SNL, like you said, or they have to be behind the, they have to be exclusively behind the camera. Like Villeneuve, like like even Xavier Dolan, which I don't know if you wanted to talk about him at all. <laughs> uh, I, I know you have some thoughts on him. I, I He's someone that I desperately need to catch up with his films. He's had, I think, probably about two or three, you know, real international hits with uh with mommy and lawrence anyways um and i'm I'm blanking on what the third one is and he's about to make his english language english language debut isn't he yep and that's why i wanted to bring him up because he's been he's kind of a he's kind of a wonder kind uh he's he's uh 28 and he started making films when he was 19 um and it was i killed my mother which was which was yeah, that was the first one, and people are like, "Whoa!" And I'm looking at the every at the list of his films. He makes a film almost every year, every other year, and it always causes a splash. Partially because it's, um, I've only seen Mommy, which uh, freaked me out a bit. Um, but I think all of his movies are like that. But I've also met him, and I wasn't a big fan of him as the person. But I'll leave that out of it. Um, but what's interesting is it takes him. I think that his his English language one won't come out till next year, The Death and Life of John F. Donovan. Um, it took him so long. So he's gotten all this acclaim. Is it that like he, he speaks English fluently, so I don't know, com- compared to, I know Denis Arcand also took a long time, but Dolan's been winning award after award much more than Villeneuve has, to be quite honest. And so his movies keep coming out that are, and they're selling out in Quebec and in France, and they're going to English language film festivals and just sweeping everything, um, nominations here and there. And why did it take him so long? And I wonder, I don't know if there's an answer for that, but yeah, that, that's sort of a, a tough thing. Like I, I, I thought 
for sure. I, I I guess I always figured he'd eventually do some English language movies because he has acted in English language productions. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like that was the next big thing, you know, because he would be able to get the money probably a lot easier working, switching over to Canadian, to English cinema. Um, but I, I almost thought he was going to stick it out with, uh, staying being the the french director that's something that like i i kind of actually hope one day villeneuve returns to it you know every once in a while someone like guillermo del toro will go back and, mm-hmm. and work in the spanish language world again which i think is nice because he brings that brings a bit of gravita back to where he came from it's a good nod it's a good way to kind of get the people work that might not get you know the mainstream exposure otherwise and yeah. if you look at Dolan's recent movies, French movies, his cast, or he gets like all the big European actors, which is pretty impressive. His, uh, his last movie, um, had Marianne Cotillard and, uh, Vincent Cassel, yep. um, Lea Seydoux, Gaspard Duel. Like he gets all of the big European actors now, which is kind of crazy. And I thought he was settling into that niche of following in the footsteps of someone like Truffaut and Godard and people like that, where you can have a long and very successful career working in the foreign language field. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's why it's partially what took it so long, but also maybe why he's pushed back at English language as well, because someone like Denis Arcand, who's pretty much never left French mm-hmm. language. And he's, he was vocal about that. I think when, um, when decline of the American empire came out, um, it was 15 years ago. I don't even remember now, but, um, but maybe Xavier Dolan says, okay, I'm not even 30 yet. I've got plenty of time and maybe wants to make a splash. Who knows? It, it could be, I think for someone like Villeneuve, I think his, his vision needs bigger budgets. And that's sort of why he, he went the way he did because arrival being his biggest budget film. And I know blade runner and Dune are, are going to be even bigger or mm-hmm. much bigger. Um, I think that's not the kind of filmmaker Dolan is. So maybe that's, that what, that's what contributed to it as well. Yeah. They're, they're pretty different. Like you almost can't get more different in, in terms of, of style. Dolan is very much about the very personal family dynamics and, you know, the troubles that go along with that. Whereas, yeah. um, uh, Villeneuve is very much about the sort of the existential and as far as you keep exploring the existential, you're going to get into bigger budget sort of things, especially with genres like sci-fi. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, those are two very interesting people and, and I, I am looking forward to see what sort of work, um, Dolan is going to do and how his English language debut is going to be received, whether it's going to, you know, continue. It seems like every other film he was releasing was the Toast of Khan. Like, yeah. that's how we know about him. We don't know about him because his films are popular here. We know about him because he's the Toast of Khan. He has been yeah. since he was 19. Which and he's always, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, TIFF does bring in, uh, like often they bring in some French language. There's always international film, but every year that there's a film at, uh, there, that he has a film ready, it's usually a special presentation at TIFF. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's, we're taking ownership of this Canadian auteur. Um, I actually, if, if it's okay with you, I want to change gears to something that we had kind of touched on, but really we've only talked, I think, about Villeneuve and Cronenberg a little bit is people who just are Canadian who make films. Sure. Um, and one that, I think it's kind of an interesting thing is James Cameron. Yeah. Um, he stopped. He, I don't think he even is Canadian anymore. I don't know if that's his citizenship. He's been in, he's been in the States for more than 40 years, but mm. 
he is a Canadian, so what extent of ownership do we t- do we take for that? My favorite of his films is Terminator, um, which is one of his, I think it was his first major film. I think he did a few things before that. Um, and he's made some other, like True Lies is one of my favorite action movies. Um, I will admit that I do like Titanic, but only saw it for the first time two years ago. Um, maybe in the context of what we're saying, do we just say, yay, he's Canadian, and remind each other and congratulate each other that he's Canadian? Or is it we're kind of grasping for straws here. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that's, I think, I think you pose a very excellent question. When I was going through doing a bit of research, his name obviously popped up as far as notable Canadian filmmakers, but I have never considered him a Canadian filmmaker. He does not right. carry whatever you want to call the Canadian sensibilities as far as bringing that towards your art and projects. He's never really been imbued with that either himself or his work. Yeah. He's made it very clear that, you know, for, you know, the betterness of his career and where he's going to land in film cinema history, it's all about him. You know, yeah, like, that's true. For the fact is, he has the two highest grossing movies of all time. There's no way around that. Avatar and Titanic, the two highest grossing movies of all time. Um, and what do people talk about when they think of those movies? They think about James Cameron. They don't yep. talk about the the amazing CGI in Avatar, even though I, I hate that movie. It's a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> the CGI in that is fantastic. There's there's literally no way to get around with saying that is some of the most cutting edge work that was being done at that time, and that still it still stands up. Yeah, you're not talking about the performances in that. You know, Sigourney Weaver was interesting in that, but like she had such a small part, no one remembers. I can't even remember what the main guy's name is. Sam Worthington. Sam Worthington. Yeah, and that's only because I looked it up a couple weeks ago. Because I said to myself, "Where is he? What is he doing?" And I think he's filming the 12 million sequels to Avatar right now. So he, if you look at probably the the amount of money his films have grossed he's probably one of like the top 10 highest grossing actors of all time (laughs) yet he literally does not have a career i like it's so baffling how hard he was pushed into a leading man role and it just has not worked yeah box office mojo almost would be inclined to agree with you because he had avatar and terminator terminator salvation in the same year and then clash of the titans very very soon after avatar Mm -hmm. and then he just disappeared Mm mm-hmm so he's he's been in a number of smaller films, but I think you're and I think that happens a lot. And this is probably a whole other podcast of people who are pushed into the role that they shouldn't be in. But um, I think I think James I think you're right, James Cameron. I think we cannot qualify him as a Canadian filmmaker, Dis- despite all of you know his success. You know, you didn't even mention Aliens, which is another one of the mm-hmm. most influential sci-fi movies um, as well. The sequel to Alien, uh, Titanic. Like I was saying with Avatar, no, like. You talk about, you know, that was Leonardo DiCaprio's big coming out party. Um, but, you know, that's usually the second thing you mention with, oh, yeah, James Cameron movie. Yeah. Like that. He, he, he is an auteur to the point where he overshadows his own work. Yes. Where the yeah. conversation becomes more about him and what it means as him being a director than what the actual film's merits are. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation if and when Avatar 2 comes out, the fact that it won't come – it won't even come close to maybe even a quarter of what the first one did. Oh, no way. I mean, and that's half a billion dollars to make, but I think it's going to be one of the most substantial flops in a long time. Probably. 
but yeah, that's a whole that that's a podcast we can have when it comes out. <laughs> Maybe yeah, you know what? That, that's a pretty interesting thing. Like, is it going to be one of those movies where it makes next to nothing here, but you know, is a huge hit in China? Um, True. Or is it going to be uh, just an absolute disaster? He he is you know probably the director you can cl- most closely compare him to is someone like George Lucas, where they have an excellent eye for making movies, but um when they're in charge of the story it sucks mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of always been his downfall even even his better movies you can argue that the story isn't that great in a lot of them oh yeah i mean Term- terminator 2 is an excellent one of my favorite sequels but you just completely rewrote like you you, re- you rewrite the story you just want to have the same actor back mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. Yeah. Anyway, we've given James Cameron probably more time than he deserves in oh, our Canadian discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very interesting. When I was in college, I studied acting for film and television at Humber. I had a film history course. Uh, and it was fascinating. Basically, what that entailed was every week we watched a movie and then talked about it. I loved it because I love watching movies and being involved in, you know, people that also love watching movies. It was great. And then in my second year, we had a Canadian history course, film history course. And the guy that taught it, I wish I could remember his name. I think it was Martin something or other, but he was not high profile in the literal sense, but a high profile Canadian writer who had written tons of Canadian, um, movies and TV mm. shows. Uh, oh, crap. Do you remember? That TV show about the dog that like helped solve crimes or something Wishbone? like that. No, not that. Like an actual like dog that like solved crimes or like would alert the police that someone needed help. But the dog didn't oh, talk Lassie? or anything. No, it didn't talk. <laughs> but it was Lassie like didn't like talk. That. One of the Lassies didn't talk. Anyway, I don't I don't recall. Uh, I can't remember, but he was like one of the executive producer and head writers on that show. And there's like, if I could remember the name, I'm sure like you would instantly remember. I'm actually going to try to Google this while I am talking, uh, which never works out. But <laughs> the whole point of the story is he, uh, he showed us lots of great Canadian films that, uh, otherwise, you know, you only sort of see about in the best of Canadian film list. And he actually brought in some of the people that worked on them to kind of talk about their films who, you know, are, are were nobodies then and, and nobodies now, but still had a very vital role of playing a part in shaping Canadian cinema. So movies like Going Down the Road and Nobody Wave Goodbye, getting to see mm-hmm. those movies. And my teacher, I believe, like co-wrote one of them. I can't remember which one he did. Um, I think it was Nobody Wave Goodbye. And he brought in the director for that too, which was pretty fast fascinating um and if you look it was something i was going to talk about later with tiff but i'll I'll bring it up now but uh every uh every decade um tiff votes on the greatest canadian movies of all time right and uh have you have you seen these lists i have because i was i was trying to remind myself what movies i've seen um (laughs) and i saw the the 2014 list i believe it was the most recent one 2015 yeah Uh, and so it's it's pretty interesting like you know i think unlike a lot of you know other film publications they tend to be under the impression that older means better and sort of discredit any new movie where if it's not at least 20 years old then you can't 
appropriately call it one of the best ever made. And I think that's, I appreciate that this list, uh, they routinely include newer movies on the list while still paying homage to the older ones. So, you know, I'll quickly run down the top 10 list. The first one, I'm not, I don't even know how to pronounce, but it's Aten Arjuat, the fast Aten runner. Arjuat. There we go. Uh, yeah. Which is an actually an Inuit movie, which is fantastic yeah. that that is our number one movie as voted by film critics and historians, which is, which is absolutely fascinating. Then, you know, you've got, uh, the very famous Claude Jutra, Mon Uncle Antoine. Yeah. Uh, Jutra is very well known, uh, in the Canadian film industry. Probably, you know, if he didn't die at such an early age, would be even more well known. And then you have people like Adam Agoyan's The Sweet Hereafter, Denis Arcon, Jesus montreal mm-hmm. um i mentioned at number six going down the road which was uh directed by don shabib who interestingly enough his son is uh drake's main producer oh well yeah. canadian industry <laughs> yeah there's not a, there's not enough of us so we all just work with each other yeah and then you got cronenberg with dead ringers and we talked about crazy from jean-marc valier guy madden's my winnipeg and then sarah paulie's stories we tell mm-hmm. um i sadly have not seen any sarah paulie directed films have you i also have not and i feel ashamed to say it because i love her as an actor mm-hmm. and i've seen a lot of what she's been in but i haven't seen i haven't seen any of the films she's directed i am very excited for her alias grace miniseries this fall but that's not film it's television <laughs> mm-hmm. um and you know, she's kind of directed a few pretty high profile movies. Um, her big one a few years ago, I guess more than a few years ago was away from her where it got mm-hmm. Julie Christie an Oscar nomination. Um, take this waltz wasn't that well received. I was with Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen and I can't yeah. remember who else was in that. Uh, and then very well received was stories we tell, which was the documentary about her own family. Uh, I haven't seen, but apparently it's a, a pretty devastating story that she made um but yeah away from her is definitely her, her big calling card and it's kind of nice actually i have, have a, like a i have a female cool. pardon me i was just gonna say like it's kind of nice that we have like uh, a big female canadian director too where there it doesn't seem like there's that many well-known canadian female directors no i was actually thinking about that I was, it's basically deepa meta who doesn't isn't as active as she used to be and sarah Pauly. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and, and i think that's a it's a bigger issue. Deepa Mehta, while it is, you know, a very Canadian <clears throat> filmmaker with her sensibilities at times, is basically doing films that she would be doing in India if they were the type of films that were allowed to be made over there. Oh, exactly. It's just even uh, Midnight's Children is an excellent film, and I I really like it mainly because I like the book. It's not a Canadian movie. It's Canadian produced, and it was filmed. It was filmed in Sri Lanka. It wasn't even filmed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's right. It's an Indian film. It's a film that barely got seen in, in most of India. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of it's sort of using being able to successfully use her positioning being not in India to make those make those films. I actually have a question coming back to Sarah Pauli. Um, and I know you wanted to talk about the National Film Board. Mm-hmm. So um, in the, the I did a cultural studies degree and I basically did um, just one year. I did a film film course um, and we took one week out of the whole course to talk about Canadian film, which is a bummer for me. But in that week, I discovered Norman McLaren um, and he was a, a Canadian uh, director and animator, um, mostly uh, prominent in the 60s to 80s. He won an, an Oscar for his film Neighbors, um, which was one of the first live action stop motion films ever made. Um, and it, it was very, it, and he did Begone Del, Del 
Self Care, Pas de Deux, um, Narcissist was his last film. Um, he was he never made a feature length film, but he was basically like he was the the pride of the NFB. And I think it's interesting because I don't think that exists in the same way. Part of what's interesting about his story, I ended up learning a lot about his life. He was gay, and he was pretty out and open about it in the 60s to 80s, um, which is, of course, rare when we think back to any part of, uh, any part of, um, I guess, our history in general. More than 10 years uh, ago. Yeah, exactly. And so he, and he had a very prolific career with a lot of support from the National Film Board, mm-hmm. mainly just to be an ex- experiment, just to be experimental. Um, he only brought his kind of his identity into his last few films when I think he was grappling with what his life was. And I think what he was, what he missed out on before he was able to be uh, kind of more out and open. Um, but I think is interesting is that he was one of many, and coming back to that list of top 10, anyone from, from the, the basically from the 70s on that list, so Don Shabib, Claude Jutra, have connections with the National Film Board. I know that Sarah Pauly does as well, but most of the other people on the list don't. And I'm curious, sort of, I don't know. I, I think I don't know as much about the National Film Board today as I know about their work from the 60s onward um, and what role they maybe should be playing in kind of enhancing Canadian film. I, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's definitely a very valid question. And I, like, from what I know, I think it's that their influence has severely waned. You know, they were, Pretty much the, you know, the real inventors of the documentary, especially in the short subject field, uh, back in a time when documentaries were not being made. So a whole bunch of filmmakers got their starts by being hired by the NFB to make documentaries, stuff that you would see on CBC on the weekends and evenings and things like that. Um, and they're so well renowned for their animated programs that they yeah. they run, especially their animated shorts. I think they, I, I, I'm, I'm 100% positive. I'm 99% positive that they have the most for a studio. They have the most Oscar nominations for, uh, short films. In, are, in any categories, like all of them it says, combined. it has received seventy. This is Wikipedia yet again, the greatest source of all time. It has uh, received seventy four Oscar nominations, more than any film organization in the world outside Hollywood, because I think that assumes uh, production companies in Hollywood that own many other ones. But mm-hmm. that's a lot of nominations. It's ridiculous. Almost all of them are from the animated short category, although yeah. they do get them sometimes in the documentary short and the live action short. But yeah, yeah you can. Pretty much predict almost every single year there is a Canadian NFB animated short nominee or makes the long list because they do, they do make a long list where they narrow it down and they are always on that. So like if you're an animator anywhere in the world, the NFB is basically where you want to go. And if you look at, you know, some of their, their most famous ones definitely have a bit of a style to them, but at the same time, they don't really hinder themselves. You know, when you watch a Pixar movie, you know exactly what sort of style of animation you're getting. Whereas the yeah. NFB, they really allowed their animators and directors carte blanche to make the stories that they wanted to tell with the the style that they wanted to i've seen some very minimalistic drawings where they're basically stick figures walking and talking and then i've seen these you know real gorgeous computer animated and also hand painted ones so they're they're everywhere across the board which i think is pretty fantastic 
Yeah, and I think even last year's nominee from Canada was Blind Vaisha, which we both had a chance to see. And and you're right, it's very much it's, it was an opportunity to you can like this is the place you go if you want to make those films. But um, we've been talking mainly about feature films. So and I know they don't do a lot of feature films. They still do support it, and primarily in documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but for these people that, that get an Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning uh, animated short or documentary short, what comes next for them? That that I don't know. Like, yeah. um, it's tough. Like, unless you end up getting scooped up by one of these big studios, uh, animation funds are, are, are not there available to people. Yeah. Um, because that's not something you can make as cheaply as you can make a documentary because you can make a, a very intimate documentary about a single subject that doesn't have to be famous or anything like that. And it'll still be well received. Whereas animation, unless you're doing all the work by yourself, you know, on the, over a period of like two years, you need a, a large team with you to be able to do it, especially if you're talking in the, in the feature length category, where it's just absolutely ridiculous the amount of work and time that needs to go into one of these things. Yeah, that's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, I th- I think you know there there's a couple other like movies I, I kind of want to throw out there. Uh, I was a fan of the movie Barney's version, which is based on the the Mordecai Richler book that was really good with Paul Giamatti that came out a few years ago that I thought was pretty interesting that didn't really get any sort of real attention. Mm. Um, uh, a really good French movie from a couple years ago called Monsieur Lazare that I believe was nominated for Best Foreign Film was pretty fantastic about uh, an Algerian teacher who moves to Canada and takes over as a substitute teacher for a class because uh, this elementary school classroom, their previous teacher committed suicide. So he's there as a substitute teacher and kind of is helping the kids through their own grief as well while trying to teach them. Uh, and so it's very interesting watching these young kids grappling with grief and some of the best child performances I've ever seen, which is quite fantastic. Uh, and a really good movie I saw last year with Ethan Hawke called Born to be Blue about uh, Chet Baker. Um, it was a fantastic little biopic that he was in. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on what's the name of uh, of the female lead that was in that. Uh, I think it was Carmen Ijo- Ijogo. Um, so if anyone's a fan of, you know, jazz music or, or music biopics, mm. I think it's a, a really, really great movie. Yeah, it is Carmen Ijogo. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, that I definitely recommend for people to check out. And it's like filled with like a lot of those. Hey, it's that guy from Canadian movies and TV shows. Right. Because it was shot up here too. Uh, it takes place in California. They, they obviously shot a bit down there, but they shot most of it up in Canada, just outside of Toronto. I can't remember exactly where, but it was just outside of Toronto. That tends to be what happened. So like I was saying earlier. Yeah. Like unless they're, you know, using our big buildings, um, saying a movie was shot in Toronto, it probably wasn't really shot in Toronto. Yeah. You know, it was shot in Stratford if they're doing a period piece or wherever it might be, or Barrie if, you know, you want a small town feel or yeah. wherever it might be. And, and so it's, it's definitely one of those things where I think, you know, that's kind of part of the pleasure of living in a country like Canada where, you know, you can drive a couple hours in any direction and you're going to get a bit of a different landscape. But you won't reach the next city. <laughs> no, no. That's the the downside. Um, I guess I have a couple more on my list if that's... Uh, Go right ahead. Do, 
Yeah, so the uh, Vincenzo, Vincenzo Natale, I probably just messed that up, his uh, movie Cube, um, mm. a really, definitely, if you look back at it now, 20 years later, it's a who's who of Canadian film and television, of course, um, but a very, very, very simple um, sci-fi thriller, um, and I was just obsessed with it. Like, I watched it probably like four or five times over the course of a week because that's how long the rental was from the Rogers video. Um, and uh, and then I think I got it again later. And it was just, I don't know why it made an impact on me, but it's the same thing. I found out very quickly it was Canadian. And I was like, yes, there's a person in Toronto who's making cool sci-fi. And it's 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 dated now. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it is definitely dated. But still, it's a, it's again, it's that, that ownership. And then another thing, which is definitely an international co-production, it's not exclusively Canadian, is Triplets of Belleville, mm. um, which is probably my favorite non-Disney or Pixar animated movie. Um, and that was uh, – a lot of the Canadian component was almost all the music was made in Montreal. Um, and some of the animation was done there too, but it was primarily done out of uh, – most of the film was done out of France. Um, very – just a solid French animated movie. Uh, it's hard It's hard to describe, but it, but, um, it was – Something about the music just seemed Quebec. I don't know why. Maybe it was knowing it going in, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but I thought that it was kind of neat to see a, a, a co-production where it was very much said, you know what, we the, the style of music we want. Um, part of it is that in, in – have you seen Triplets of Belleville? I have not, no. So the, the city of Belleville in, in the film, it's this kind of uh, neo-futuristic um, but also very French city, is modeled after Montreal. Um, and it's, it's animated, so it's very, very surreal. It's not meant to look, look real. But I think because uh, Sylvain Chomet, the director and the writer, wanted it to have that Montreal feel, he said the music is the way to make it work. They actually got nominated for Best Original Song, and I'll never forget that performance at the Oscars because they played almost all the instruments on uh, – all the instruments were bicycles um, <laughs> because that's how they made some of the music in the movie and i thought it was just so neat and so very unusual and very kind of this is the way i want to make the movie and again it's we've talked about it a few times and i think he just said montreal this is how you're going to be on on film in a way um yeah those were the rest on my list really so there you go (laughs) some good ones um i think you know uh two directors we haven't mentioned are the father-son combo of the reitman family uh ivan reitman pretty much you know, reinvented the the comedy back in the in the eighties, and then his son Jason Reitman started out really, really promising with uh, "Thank You for Smoking," and then has uh, steadily gone downhill. Even though I do like um, "Up in the Air," uh, he's I don't know what the hell is up with his movie selection. But like, <laughs> man, thank you. Did you ever see "Thank You for Smoking"? I love "Thank You for Smoking." I thought it was such excellent. a fantastic movie. That was the movie yeah. where I was like. Aaron Eckhart is a damn genius. I will yep. watch anything that he's in. And then now since then, I don't care anymore. But like when I saw that, I was just so blown away with that script and, and Eckhart's performance in that. Yeah, I think it's it's but this is a, a consistent thing. And maybe it's a question of like he born Canadian. Does he still technically live in Canada? Does he spend his time in Canada? Um, I mean, for, for Jason Reitman specifically. And like he is he's he's still making a lot of his Wikipedia page hasn't been a film almost every year, mm-hmm. but uh, you can see as Wikipedia is want to do the the award section shrinks as you go further down. Um, after I mean he 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 did Juno, he did Up in the Air, um, and then it sort of it, it sort of wanes, and I think it's it's an interesting 
I, I think it was maybe there's a reason why he neither of the Reitmans were brought up maybe in our uh, in our discussion too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if we were doing like a proper history of Canadian cinema, I think Ivan Reitman would definitely play a much bigger yeah. role with his movies, yeah. uh, Stripes and Meatballs and, and things like that, where it was really essential. And you know, most people are shocked to actually learn that those are Canadian films. Those are those are Canadian produced films. Yeah. Uh, the reason why is because you know you've got Bill Murray as your star. You don't expect <coughs> it to be a Canadian thing. Yeah. So I think that's pretty interesting. And, and I don't know if I don't think jason's movies qualify as being canadian produced uh not i'm pretty sure they don't yeah um and then oh yeah his his father also did uh ghostbusters 2 uh ghostbusters as well and ghostbusters 2 um so yeah like his his father is definitely a mark on even just comedy in general uh he's big up there um I, I think, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier was, was Tiff, you know, brought up the idea of celebrating Canadian filmmakers and also the fact that they're kind of somewhat the ownership of these 10 greatest Canadian film lists that come out every decade. But, um, while they don't always seem to be at the forefront of, pushing uh, of finding the next great canadian artist i think they have definitely done more than their fair share of promoting encouraging not not directly financing but giving financial support by giving these outlets for them to canadian artists as a whole and i don't think that can be something that can be really thanked enough because they really set the blueprint for every other film festival in canada and after cons is basically the most important film festival in the world yeah i agree with you i think as i said with with xavier dolan as an example sometimes they sort of latch on to people Mm -hmm. um but i think you're right i think that they do make an effort i know that tickets are on sale for this year's festival but the the nothing will be announced for a little while still they always make an effort to really celebrate um canadian film and i think it's it's uh an effort they're now trying to make is that that one of the galas should always be a canadian film which is something they didn't always do for at least the last 10 15 years don't they Um, end with a canadian film they they always end with a canadian film but yeah. The, the very prestigious opening, and then there's a, there's two early special presentations that are prestigious spots, and those are usually things like La La Land yeah. um, and Arrival, which are great. I mean, like a, you know how much I love Arrival, but um, and I think it's it's something that they're working on. But I think you're absolutely right, especially I've noticed it kind of growing up and being more in love with film over the last 15 years um, that they have definitely said, hey, everyone, this film's Canadian. You should come see it. And I think Hot Ducks does the same thing with with uh, documentary film. Mm-hmm. They really this this particular past one as part of Canada 150, they were trying to do as well. But very much saying, hey, there's great documentary film everywhere. But here are amazing Canadian uh, filmmakers. You need to see what they're doing. So I think we're grateful in Toronto. And I don't think that's very common across the country. Even Montreal has a large film festival, not as large. Um, and they do celebrate a lot of Quebec film. But um, I think you're right that TIFF has a very vital vital role in that for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's not just English language films. They, they quite often, you know, <clears throat> Denis Arcan, um, and Adam Agoyan, uh, Agoyan obviously being English filmmaker mostly, but Ar- Arcan was definitely the toast of Tiff through the nineties and the early 2000s yeah. when he was getting all the love, especially when he got, uh, his best foreign film win for, um, Le, Bar- Le Barbarian of Ajan. Um, I'm, I, if my memory recalls me correctly, Tiff played a big part in pushing that. Yeah, it definitely, they definitely did. 
Um, so that is like, you can, you cannot fault them for what they have done in the past. Couldn't they be doing a bit more? Absolutely. Especially with the changing landscape of the way we digest films, but they have definitely played their part that you can never take that away from them. No, for sure not. And I think it's, and I must say, it's very Canadian of us to say, you're doing a great job. Here are some suggestions for improvement, but you're still doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think you also can't really talk about Canadian film without really talking about CBC. While, you know, yep. they are a television channel, they routinely would be producing their own films, whether they're documentaries, uh, or shorts or things like that. They are a big key factor into what makes Canadian cinema. I think you, you can't really underestimate the role that they sort of played in, you know, the shaping of the industry either. Oh, definitely. I'm a, I'm a very big CBC proponent. I love Canadian television. I think maybe less than now, I think with television now, they're making incredible TV and they're really pushing it around the world, which is amazing. And I think 20 years ago, they were making incredible telefilms and miniseries and doing the same thing. And I think for a long time, they've been doing, like you said, they've been, they have some not great films. I happen to watch their terrible Shania Twain, uh, docu or not documentary, um, biopic. I remember that, the commercials for that. Jeez. Yeah. It was a, it was a big event for them, but the problem is they could only get the, the, the rights to her story up until she released her first studio album. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you can do. Um, Wasn't she like 16 when her first album came out? She was 17 or 8. She was very young. Yeah. So it was a lot of, and she did go through a lot of stuff. But, um, but at the same time, you have some. The, the, the first Trudeau documentary, or not documentary. Sorry, I keep saying that miniseries was huge, and I think it really uh, catapulted Colm Fiore as a Canadian kind of actor. Um, Even though he's not actually Canadian. Well, exactly. That's the thing. But it's just he, he's in Canadian stuff all the time. Yeah. He's on the stage and he lives here. So yeah. still sort of counts. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we can't deny that. And I think it's it's good that they still can stay afloat. But I know that the CBC we have now is, is so different and probably half of the capacity they had even 10 years ago. But thankfully, they have new things. And again, this is on the television side, like uh, at the new Anne show uh, and Alias Grace and a number of their other programs. Now they have international Netflix deals and uh, shows that are on networks in the States. And it's, it's really shifting a lot. And I think that they've built up decades of this goodwill of we, we we push good product essentially and getting that out there to the world i think they go through peaks and valleys with their quality of their output where you know they'll go almost a decade with you know failed show after failed show and mini series that were embarrassing um and things like that and then you know it seems like right now they're in a bit of a renaissance period again, uh, yeah. where they're, where they're back to making quality work to the point where I almost want to attribute it to the fact that their backs are up against the wall. So it, they're almost forced to <coughs> prove their worthwhileness to the public since a great deal of the public has a very fiercely debate of whether or not we should be funding public broadcasters or if we are funding how much we should be giving them and, and things yeah. like that. And so that's sort of like an ongoing debate. And I think that the most recent debate, because, you know, not to get too political, but, you know, the last administration we had uh, was very anti-CBC. Yeah. So that sort of forced them to make do with the resources they had and really kind of stick it to the man, basically. And I think because of that, they're once again in a real creative peak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I think you're right. I think it was kind of the, the perfect storm of 
they they were forced to do more with less and then funding they didn't get restored but funding got enhanced um and they were able to and i think this actually speaks to one of the things we brought up earlier is that that radio canada the french component has almost the same amount of support obviously i don't know if the if the if the the funds funds are the same but they their output is so high because there's a lack of french canadian content um and so it, it's amazing that then that the english side of it is now catching up with a lot more television a lot more projects um financing they, they are finance helping to finance films that won't even air on cbc for years that's something that they're working on very very slowly much like the bbc does in the uk so it's it's getting there and i think we're, we're very lucky to have it <laughs> i i agree you know, I think we covered a lot, uh, talked a lot of names. I my my hope is that people aren't immediately dismissive of Canadian content. You know, we do have a lot of junk that ends up getting pushed to the forefront, but there's also a lot of great stuff that you know makes it to the mainstream, and even more that you know never really gets above that. You know two-week releases in one movie theater that you'll never hear about again sort of thing um that's a real shame and yeah. i think there definitely is a lot out there that we we should be watching you know it seems like every four or five years there's either a filmmaker or a film specifically that sort of bursts into the mainstream world whether it's getting a, an oscar nomination for best foreign film or making waves at con or you know being a highlight at tiff and getting some just, awards outside of the canadian categories or just being denis villeneuve being a great filmmaker <laughs> it is yeah you know what and, and i think he i you know comparing him to james cameron i still think he's carried a bit of canadian sensibilities to his filmmaking even though they are not canadian films they don't take place in canada and there's i i don't think he's had any canadian leads in his english movies but i think it's he i think he he has a strong french canadian identity and that is probably what's there stronger than than especially someone like James Cameron, pretty much anyone from English Canada who might just sort of separate themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, yeah, I think, I think we're grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we, we covered a lot. I had a, a really good and interesting conversation with you. I, I hope you feel the same way. Absolutely. Great. Well, uh, I hope to have you on again. So thank you so much for, for joining me today, Sammy. My pleasure. All right. Um, so make sure you check out liveandlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be. Where I'll list a few of the movies that we talked about and directors that you should definitely check out if there's some that you haven't seen before. Or, you know, maybe we just help jog your memory of some great classics you had seen but forgotten about. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at DGAPA. Make sure you follow at Live and Limbo. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. I hope uh, you had a, a good Canada Day, 150, whatever you want to call it, Canada Year, um, and uh, put on a Canadian film. So thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>